If you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel 19, this Lord's Day. And as you turn there, uh, as David mentioned, uh, today our response, our time of invitation is going to be an invitation to the Lord's table. And as we uh, share in the Lord's Supper together during this uh, time of COVID, we do have these little uh, individual containers of juice and the bread. And so uh, if you haven't already, if you'll make your way to one of those baskets to pick that up uh, for each member of your household, will be receiving the Lord's Supper today. We invite everyone who is a professing follower of Jesus Christ uh, to come to the table with us. And we'll be doing that at the conclusion of our sermon this morning. And we come today to 1 Samuel 19. We are at a point now where we have seen very clearly uh, the difference between those who are truly trusting in the Lord and being blessed by the Lord and those who are intent on doing things their own way, walking in the flesh. And we've seen an example of that, a contrast of that, as we've seen David and Jonathan uh, trusting in the Lord, trusting in the Lord's will and the Lord's sovereign plan. And then we've seen Saul in opposition, specifically in opposition to the Lord's anointed, the, the future king of Israel, David. And as we see the, the fruit of these men's hearts come out, we've seen more and more evident of where their hearts is. And we'll see further evidence of that today. As we left off in chapter 18, we were reminded of Saul's hatred for David, which I'll remind you is really... Saul's hatred for God. Uh, David is God's anointed one. He is God's chosen one. And so Saul is not just standing in opposition to David. He's standing in opposition to the Lord. And we should be mindful of that when we read verses like chapter 18, verse 29. Saul was David's enemy continually. Now this sets Saul in opposition to God continually. And I hope that if you do not know this already, that the Spirit will indeed make you aware today that you do not want to be God's enemy continually. And so as we pray for work of the Spirit among us today, let's look to God's Word together and out of reverence for this Word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read our passage for us this morning. 1 Samuel 19, beginning there in verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hands, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. 
And Jonathan called David and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. But then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let... Or Michal let David down through the window and he fled and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over him, the Spirit of the Lord came upon the messengers of Saul. And they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers. And they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again a third time. And they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah. And came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went and he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel. And lay naked all day and all night. Thus it is said, it's Saul also among the prophets. If you would pray with me. Father, help us to be mindful of your words more than our words today. Help us to trust in your will over our will today. Help us. To seek out your sovereign plan over our plans. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in a career that spanned over half a century, Frank Sinatra recorded some 60 albums and close to 300 singles. But out of those thousands of songs that he would sing and record and perform, the one that 
that became most associated with him was his signature song, My Way. My Way was a, a ballad of the persona that Sinatra had built up over the years. You know the song, it went this way. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friends, I'll say it clear, I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full, I've traveled each and every highway, but more, much more than this. I did it my way. This song was one he would perform over and over and over again, but after he passed away, his daughter shared with those who inquired about this signature song that her father had actually grown to hate it. He saw it as self-serving and self-indulgent. And if you really consider the lyrics, you can see why. I mean, the song ends with this. For what is a man and what has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say all the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows, but I did it my way. Turns out this wasn't really the ballad of Sinatra after all, but if it had been written a few thousand years before, it could have been the ballad of King Saul. <laughs> this was a man who would not bend his knee. This was a man who would not yield his will. He started out well. He was the first king over Israel. He was one who initially seemed to be trusting in the Lord. But we see as, as his power grew and as his pride was inflated, he was determined to do things his way. And when it became clear that his way was not God's way, and God's way was not his way, well, he stuck with his way. And given opportunities to repent, he refused to. Given opportunities to trust in the Lord's anointed to, to bless David, the future king of Israel, he would not yield. So that we now come to this point in the text where David is his enemy continually. And what previously had been kind of a disguised effort to take David out, a, a scheme to use the Philistines to kill David, well, well now he just all out is sharing with anyone around him, he wants David dead. And so as we walk through this passage today, let's see what we might learn from it. Beginning with first point there in your outline, what we see in this text is that Saul tries to killed, kill the Lord's anointed king. Now this is very clear, his intentions again are very clear at this point. As we begin chapter 19, he's no longer concealing this, he's no longer hiding this. No, he tells Jonathan and all of his servants, he wants David dead. Well, we already know from the text that Jonathan's relationship with David and their kindred spirit and their brotherly affection and love, and so of course Jonathan hears this from his father, and he immediately goes, he warns David. And he comes up with this plan that David should go into hiding and that, that he's going to try to change his father's mind and that he'll do this in such a way that he can then go and report back to David. So Jonathan thinks he can, he can fix all of this if he can just change his father's mind. And so then we have this conversation between Jonathan and his father Saul and and notice 
what he says to him. And he tells him, Father, David's done nothing wrong to you. He's innocent. Why would you shed innocent blood? He hasn't schemed against you. He hasn't tried to overthrow you. If anything, he's been a blessing to you. I mean, there they were in that situation where Goliath was defying the armies of the living God, seeking to enslave them to the Philistines. No one would take on Goliath until this shepherd boy David comes to the scene. And he stands in the place of the army. He stands in the place of Saul. And Saul joyfully sends him out. Jonathan reminds him of these things. And then battle after battle, victory after victory, God brought salvation to Israel at David's hand. He had done nothing wrong. And it seems here that Jonathan was rather persuasive. In fact, it seems he changes Saul's mind. Look at verse 6. Saul is evidence of this changed mind. He says, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. He makes this vow before the Lord. He, he promises in God's name that no harm will ever come to David by his hand. And so this is good news. Uh, Jonathan goes and tells David, and David then is brought back into the king's court. Now again, it's important for us to recognize here what we've seen already, that, that in the Old Testament, and specifically in 1 Samuel, you, you've got types you got pictures, and we talked about how David is a type of Christ. When David stands on behalf of the army of Israel and takes on their enemy and defeats their enemy, that's a picture of the gospel. He's a type of Christ, one man who stands on behalf of all of us and defeats our enemy for us. We are saved through him and trusting in him. That's a, a picture of Jesus. But David's not the only type. He's not the only picture we have in 1 Samuel. Saul is also a type. He is also a picture. Certainly not like that of David, rather opposite. He, he is a picture of unredeemed man. He is a picture of one who might change their mind, but does not have a change of heart. He is a picture of one who is an enemy of the Lord continually. An unredeemed unrepentant man and that comes out because the changed mind is not a changed heart and eventually the heart comes back out and the fruit of it so as we continue in the passage David returns to his court and now Saul is burdened again by a spirit from the Lord we've talked about this before but just as a reminder I, I believe this is the conviction of God on Saul this is the the weight of his sin on him this is yet another opportunity for him to repent and him to turn but he will not and so his response as he looks at David, I believe as the Spirit of the Lord is prompting him to understand, David is the Lord's anointed. David is the next king over Israel. Samuel had said, a neighbor of yours who's better than you. Those women had come out and sang as they'd returned from victory about David being better than Saul. The Spirit is prompting Saul to understand these things. He is the Lord's anointed. But rather than yield and bend his knee, to the Lord's anointed. How does he respond to this inclination, this news, this prompting? He tries to kill David again 
with the spear. Think about that for a second. I mean, in verse 6, here's Saul promising in the Lord's name before the Lord, and the name of God, not a hair on his head will be touched. And then, between verse 6 and verse 9, he's ready to kill him. Why is that? I believe it's because Saul wanted that throne more than anything. And he saw David as a threat to what he wanted. Saul was okay with David while David was playing the lyre for him, while he was comforting him and soothing him. He was okay with that. Saul was even okay when David was taking his place. He should have been the one out there in front of his army. He should have been the one taking on Goliath. Saul was okay He endorsed it. He he sent David out there. He was fine putting David in battle time and time again to take on the Philistines. He he was fine with David protecting him and comforting him. But he would not give up his throne. He would not bend his knee. He would not yield to the Lord's anointed. He was intent on saying all the things he truly feels but not the words of one who kneels. And Saul here, I believe, is a picture of unredeemed man. A picture of man in his natural state. A picture of man who will not bend the knee to the Lord's anointed. By nature, we want to sit on the throne of our lives. (laughs) By nature, we, we want to be in charge. By nature, we want to be in command. We want to call the shots. We want to do things our way. Now, we don't mind a little religion along the way because that can comfort us. We don't mind a little protection from God. We, We pray, Lord, protect us. We want the Lord's protection. We want the Lord's comfort. But we, in our natural state, do not want the Lord on the throne. We don't want him calling all the shots. I mean, you look at how people respond when it becomes evident that their ways are not the Lord's ways and God's will is different from their will. Well, well you just don't understand my situation. Well, my, my God would never say that. <laughs> and no matter how they phrase it, friends, what, what we are saying in those moments is that as much as we might want the Lord's comfort and we might want the Lord's perfection, we don't want him sovereign. We don't want him sitting on the throne. We, we don't want to give that control over to anyone else. We see this in Saul, and we see this in our own hearts. And notice how this plays out in, in Saul's feelings towards David, his, his hatred of David, when David's done nothing wrong to him. Does that remind us of anything else? Of anyone else? I mean, think of how the people responded to Jesus. Think of how quickly their minds changed, but really how the evidence of their hearts came out. Think of how Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and at one moment they're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, the King is coming. And moments later, they're yelling, crucify Him, crucify Him. They want to kill Him. And why? What had He done? The blind could see, 
the deaf could hear. He raised people from the dead. How was this an offense to the people and the religious leaders of his day? He had done nothing wrong. He was innocent. And yet they wanted to kill him. David here, Jonathan reminds Saul, he's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing but a blessing to you. And yet Saul wanted to kill him. The Lord's anointed. But notice what we see in the text. Point two. The Lord protects his anointed king. And so Saul is not successful in his plans, any of them, to kill David. Even though he's come out with it now and he's just been clear. I want him dead. I want him dead. I want him dead. What does the Lord do? The Lord protects David. He protects his anointed king. Now, first we see he uses his wife, Michal, to protect him. So David flees from Saul's palace. Understandable. Spears are flying. It's time to get out. In fact, he's not going to come back at this point. He's gone. And so first he goes to his home, but then his, his wife, Mikhail, pleads with him to flee. And so she lowers him down from the window and gets him out of the house. And then she comes up with this plan. <laughs> the first thing that came to mind as I read this plan is uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Anybody ever see Ferris Bueller's Day Off? You remember he's going to stay home. Now kids, don't, don't do this, but... He's going to stay home, he's going to play hooky, and he's got to convince everybody that might come in and check on him that he's still there. So what does he do? He puts a mannequin in the bed, and he kind of rigs the mannequin up with the door. And so when the door opens, it looks like he's moving in the bed, and the, the, the noise comes on the radio, and it's playing sniffling and sneezing and coughing. He's got this whole plan hatched. Well, uh, in, in a, a much less technologically savvy way, that's a picture of what we have here. <laughs> And so Macau goes and she puts this image in the bed and puts goat's hair on it and covers it with clothing. Now, this image, what this is, it's a household god. This is a pagan image the size of a man. And the scripture doesn't tell us anything about where she gets it. It doesn't tell us if it's hers. It doesn't tell us if she just goes out and gets it. It doesn't say if it's just one of the servants and they've got it. It may be that it indeed was hers. It may be that this gives us a little bit more understanding of what Saul was thinking when he was happy about this marriage between David and Michal and said she'll be a snare to him. Maybe that snare was her worship of false gods and false images and, and he hoped this would lead David astray. We, we really don't know at this point. But what we do know is she takes this image and she puts it in the bed and she's got this plan and so... Then, understandably, the, the messengers are sent from King Saul. They want to check on what David's doing and where he's at. And so she says, well, he's sick in bed. But fake David doesn't fool them. <laughs> they can tell as they inquire that this is not the real man. After all, Saul had actually told them, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take him and bring him to me, and I'm going to kill him. I'm going to end this right now. And so at some point they do that. Maybe one of them goes and and is stunned when they pull a, a big thick mound of goat's hair out of the bed and said David's hair, or this household God comes fumbling out of the bed. But they figure things out. And they tell Saul. And so Saul comes and confronts his daughter, and notice her response here. Well, I had to do it. David was going to kill me. Now that's not what had happened. There's no indication that that's what happened. But that's what she says. Why does she say that? We, we don't really know why she says that 
but she's lying, and she's lying in order to protect her husband. Now, side note, it's important to understand, we're reading here the description of things that took place, not the prescription of how things should be. <laughs> that this is not an endorsement for us to all go around and just start lying and hatching schemes to try to make sure we work out our perception of what God's will is. The scripture says God hates a liar. We're to be people of the truth. That this is not prescriptive, it is descriptive. It's a historical record of what happened, not an example for us to follow. But nonetheless, in God's sovereign plan, his sovereign hand is at work, and he uses this deception to protect David. And so now David has fled, and he goes to see Samuel at Ramah. He returns to the one who had come and anointed him as the future king of Israel. And Saul learns of this. And he sends his messengers after David. And then something a bit out of the ordinary takes place. Verse 20, the Spirit of God comes upon these messengers of Saul. You probably could call them assassins of Saul. Their intention is to go and kill David. But notice what happens, that they come to this place where Samuel is there and there's prophecy taking place. Prophecy is the, the speaking of God's Word and God's truth. And as God's words being shared and spread and spoken, these assassins are coming to kill David and all of a sudden they are, they are swept up, they are overwhelmed by the Spirit of God and they start to prophesy. Now again, the Scripture doesn't give us great detail here. I would love great detail here. But we can infer that what they're doing here is they're prophesying that they're speaking God's truth. So imagine that for a second. Here come these soldiers, these guards, probably swords in hand. They can see Samuel. Perhaps they can even see David. Their goal, their mission is to take him out. And as they're on their way to do that, with their spears and their swords, all of a sudden they're so overwhelmed by the Spirit of God that then they look to one another and say, What are you doing? That's the Lord's anointed. We should come against the Lord's anointed. If God is for him, who can be against him? You need to repent. No, you need to repent. No, you need to repent. And they're sitting there rebuking one another and calling each other to repentance and speaking God's word. That spirit of conviction overwhelms them. They're speaking God's truth to each other. And so no harm comes to David. Now Saul hears of this and I think at this point he considers them mad, even though he's really the one that's mad. Isn't it interesting how that happens? The ones who are the great deceivers just assume everyone else is deceiving them. That The ones who are the liars think everyone else is lying. The ones who are cheats think everyone else is cheating. The one who is truly mad just assumes everyone else is mad and crazy and has lost their minds. And so he sends more assassins, more messengers. The same thing happens. He sends more, the same thing happens. It's rather humorous at this point. But not to Saul. Not to the one who would not bend his knee. And so there Saul sits on his throne and the thoughts are coming through his mind. If you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. And I'm going to do it my way. And so he too goes to Ramah. When he shows up, notice what happens. Verse 24, he too, Saul, he strips off his clothes 
And he too prophesied before Samuel, and he lay naked all day and all night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. God takes this unredeemed, unrepentant man who would not bend his knee, who said all the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels, and he humbles him. He humiliates him. The one who would not yield to God's word is now one laying there bare before everyone speaking the words of God. The one who would not take off his garments like his son Jonathan did and and put those, those royal vestments on David. A picture there of trust in the Lord's anointed, of hope in the Lord's anointed. The one who refused to do that, what does God do? He strips his clothes off of him. And he humiliates him. I wonder if this was going through the mind of David's son Solomon sometime down the road when he would write under the inspiration of the Spirit in Proverbs 29, 23, One's pride brings him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. I mean, that's a familiar scene, isn't it? In the early days, God tells creation, he tells man to be fruitful and multiply and spread throughout the earth. And what does unrepentant, rebellious, unredeemed man do? Rather than spread, he... he, congregates and he gathers and he says to one another we're going to build a tower to the heavens we're going to be exalted what does God do he confuses their language he humiliates them and he spreads them out over all the earth we see king after king after king who in their pride in their glory they demand worship for themselves kings like Nebuchadnezzar You're going to bow down, not to God, but to this golden image. What does God do to King Nebuchadnezzar? He makes him like an ox and puts him in a field eating grass. King Saul would not give up his throne or his royal garments. So the Lord strips him down, and here he is on the ground speaking the truth of God's word, humbled and humiliated. Matthew 23, verse 12, Jesus says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, the Lord always protects his anointed. So how are we to respond to this? (laughs) What's the practical application for us from 1 Samuel 19? Watch out for spears. <laughs> Be careful if kings show up prophesying, turn your head the other way. <laughs> well, what are we to practically take away from this passage? I think it comes down to this question, that third point I put there in your outline. What is our response to the Lord's anointed king? Well, we've seen Saul's. We've seen Jonathan's, we've seen Mikhail's. The question is, what what is our response to the Lord's anointed king? Will we demand 
to do things our way? Will we demand the throne of our life? Or will we bend our knee and yield to our sovereign? Will we put our hope and our trust in Christ? Will we give up our throne to Him? And understand that this is not a question that we ask after we become a Christian. This is a question that really determines will we indeed become a Christian? Because you cannot become a follower of Jesus if you will not bend your knee to Jesus. You cannot truly be repentant and trusting in Christ. You cannot experience not just a change of mind, but a change of heart if you will not abdicate the throne and trust in our sovereign, in the Lord's anointed. Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You cannot be saved if you will not give up your throne. Here's the good news of the gospel. That if we will indeed give up that throne, that not only will Jesus take his rightful place on it, but he invites us then to come and sit beside him. He invites us to come to his table. He invites us to come and dine with him. That is the picture we have in our future glory that awaits. And until our faith becomes sight, And until we take a seat at that table, what we have this table is a table of remembrance. And so we're going to come to this table today together. We're going to come to this table mindful that in order to take a seat at this table, we first need to bend the knee to Christ. And so I'll remind you, if you've yet to bend that knee, if you've yet to trust in Christ, if you've yet to confess Christ as your Lord, then we would ask that you observe rather than participate until you've put your trust in the lord until you publicly profess that trust before this or another congregation then then we invite you to to watch as we come to this table together a reminder that we don't come to this table as perfect people we come to this table as those who are trusting in a perfect savior and so we're going to walk through the scripture and we're going to receive the Lord's Supper together, again, a, a little bit differently uh, than what has been traditional for us here at Bloomfield Baptist Church, but one that I believe is in line with what the Scripture calls us to as we receive this together. And so you'll take that little cup you have there, and as you peel off the top piece of plastic, you'll come to a piece of unleavened bread. And that's significant. There are churches traditions well they'll take a loaf of just regular bread and they'll break it and I, I don't think there's a problem with that but I think there's something we miss when we don't take unleavened bread because this is a reminder to us and it's a reminder of that Passover meal that God's people would take and celebrate it's a reminder that when God rescued his people and their slavery and captivity in Egypt and brought them out quickly that there wasn't time for the bread to be leavened for it to rise. It's a reminder to us of the swift deliverance of our God. And that's what he offers us in the gospel. That's what we remember when we receive this bread. That's what Jesus wanted us to remember when he said, take this and eat. He, he freely gives this to us. That this is not a potluck. You didn't bring anything to this table today. 
This table here is for you from the Lord that you might take and receive. We read about it in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul writes this. For I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's thank the Lord together as we prepare to receive this bread together. If you would, pray with me. Father, we, we want to say thank you today. We want to thank you for this bread, for this provision. And this is a, a small wafer. This isn't going to fill our stomachs or hold back our appetite right now, but it's a, it's a reminder to us of your great provision for us. And it's a reminder to us that while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. It's a reminder to us that if we will confess Christ as Lord and believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead that we'll be saved. It's a reminder to us that all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And that when you save, you saved swiftly. You don't wait for us to get our act together. You don't call on us to attain some level of perfection in our lives. No, you, you take us as we are. And as we repent... And we are covered. We are, we are robed with the blood of Jesus. So Lord, thank you for that reminder. And help us to remember this now. As we receive this bread in the name of Christ our King. Amen. take the cover now off of that juice let me continue reading from first corinthians 11 and the same way also he jesus took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as each of you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes Let's thank him now for this cup. Father, we thank you again for your provision of the gospel. And we thank you for this cup, a reminder to us of the new covenant, a reminder to us that we are cleansed through the blood of Jesus, a reminder to us that we will always fall short in our own efforts. Now, there's nothing so good that we could do that would be deserving of salvation, a reminder to us of your grace and your mercy Again, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A reminder to us of what we received through the precious blood of Jesus that washes us clean and makes us pure. And that allows us to come into your presence that we might sit and eat and dine with our King in glory. Help us to remember these things now as we receive this cup in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a reminder to you, if you will hold on to this and just throw it in one of the trash cans as you're leaving today. But before you leave, we want to respond to God's Word by 
lifting up our voices and singing in response. So if you would stand together and let's sing together.